When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Have a really great episode for you today. I recently sat down with Snoop Dogg, who gave me an amazingly deep and funny and revealing interview about his entire career. He has a new album coming out November 11th called The Algorithm, and we start off talking about a few tracks from that, but then we dig into the making of his greatest hits, his memories of Tupac, and a whole lot more. Let's get straight to that conversation. I wanted to start by asking about No Bammerweed, which is a great song. It seems like a nod to RBL Posse that Don't Give Me No Bammer. We don't smoke that shit in a SFC. Don't give me no bammerweed. I assume that was part of the inspiration. Uh, definitely, because we don't smoke, you know, no bammerweed. We only smoke fire, so. A lot of motherfuckers love trying to give me weed and, you know, being nice, but it's the only way I can be nice back and say, I only smoke fire. Don't give me no bammer weed. You have uh, Moray on Get My Money, and, and that's a really strong track, and I'm a big fan of his. I love him. I, I'm so inspired by him. I like his style, his get down, his whole, his look, his aura, his energy. You know, so I reached out to him. It was one of those things where I, I love his energy, and I reached out to him. He's one of those guys who's incredibly melodic, and that's a big strain of rap for the past, like especially this you know, past decade. But you were way ahead on that. You've always been melodic. Where did that come from in your flow always incorporating the melody in my flow is based off of the the love of the music that i grew up listening to the r&b music whether it was you know the isley brothers gap band the moments temptations temperies dramatics whatever it was one of those super groups they always had great melodies they harmonized well and i always wanted to have some of that in my music so i always take a little piece of my inspiration and then insert it into my music on the Snoop Lion project, we, I feel like we really got to hear you sing, and you can sing. When you came back to rapping, did any of that flow back into you? Oh, most definitely. I was able to take some of the things I learned in Jamaica and the reggae world and, um, you know, put them into the, to the new version of Snoop Dogg. You know, you get bigger and better day by day. And musically, I just try to enhance myself and get as much information so I can become the best musician possible. Man, I fed into... Um, a feeling. I wanted music to feel good. I wasn't really tripping off of what it sounded like. I wanted to be able to close my eyes and feel that shit and make sure that it felt good to me. If it felt good to me, it's going to feel good to you. Did you have like a general kind of goal for this album, for this project? Were you thinking in, in some particular direction? The direction I was thinking in the most was just putting out some great fucking music. Like it's that time, you know what I'm saying? It's time for Snoop Dogg to pop back on the scene and not only do it by itself, but bring an army of people with him. You know, new artists, established artists, and some legends. You adapt, you sound modern, but you're not out there trying to do something that that some 18-year-old rapper is doing. How do you kind of think of it as like, okay, I've been doing this a while, styles change, but I'm still Snoop, and I'm recording an album here in 2021. Like, how, do, how does that all work in your head, if you know what I mean? It works to both sides of it as far as knowing that there is a young generation that, you know, probably don't know nothing about my music in the 90s. So I got to make music for them as well. But at the same time, I got to make music for their mamas and their daddies as well. 
So I just try to like, you know, make sure I take care of the whole house. And on this particular project, <laughs> I was able to grab some artists that were in that young world, whether it was Ty Dolla Sign, August 08, Dino Rideau, YK Osiris. I mean, putting these young artists on there to help them, you know, stand tall is a beautiful thing as well. One of my favorite videos of you, I've watched it a million times, is, uh, I forget where it is, but it's some interview where you're talking about the triplet flow that was, that was really big for a while, that Migos flow. Uh, and you do your imitation of it. It makes me laugh every single time. Are you happy to see that kind of fade out a little bit? I'm happy that it came back to us originators, that the originators who created it got it back. You know what I'm saying? That's the Migos shit, and it should be theirs. You know, between the Migos and Future, that's the style that they perfected, and they should they should hone that style. It should be theirs. It shouldn't be everybody get to use the style. That ain't what hip-hop is about. You're supposed to create your own uniqueness about yourself and hold on to it and let that be you. That's why I've been able to sustain for so many years because I'm original, I'm unique, I sound like me, I don't sound like you, and I don't do what you do. Because you do pay attention. What are you hearing now, if anything, that, that is, is being overdone in, in rap? That's the equivalent now of that triple flaw. Uh, the algorithm of computers trying to tell people what's hot and what's not, and the computers dictating as far as what music is supposed to sound like as opposed to humans telling you what music is supposed to feel like. It was a time where radio DJs would go to the streets, find records, bring them back to the station, play the records, people would request those records, and then that artist would become hot. Nowadays, it's a computer saying, play this song, play this song, and if you listen, every song sounds the same. And it's like, that's because it's a computer saying if it was a human in there, they would never play five songs back to back that sound the same from five different artists. That's terrible programming. Rap was built off of originality. You know, when you took somebody's style, it was called biting. If you took somebody's look, it was called biting. And if you look at rap now, it's moved into a new, you know, aura, new era, new generation. So all of that shit that we went by the rules are out the window. You could take somebody's style, somebody's name, somebody's look, and make it your own. When we were coming up, you had to be you. And that's what made it harder and tougher for us to, you know, pursue our dreams as far as making great records. Was there a moment that you let go of feeling like you were Snoop Lion? Like, how did that transition work? Because that was, I mean, that, that was more than just an album. That was a, a phase of your, of your existence, really. I don't think I ever left that. I think it's inside of me. I don't think it was never outside. I just had to let you know what it was so you could understand when my transformation happened, you know, what I was going through. It's in me. You know, Snoop Lion is in here for life. That's the peace, the love, the tranquility that I gained from becoming Snoop Lion and walking through that experience. So I take that with me everywhere I go. Would you still consider yourself a Rastafarian? You know what? I feel like I'm, I'm the guy that is identifiable with everybody and anybody. And um, I think I represent love. That's what I represent. I think Rastafari's represent love as well. So I'm definitely in the vein of, if not, I am. Fair enough. So tell me when you first heard about this Super Bowl performance. What was the kind of first word you got that this thing might be happening? Uh, Dr. Dre hit me up and told me that um, they was considering him. And stay ready so I ain't got to get ready. And you know me, I'm always on point, so... When he finally hit me back and said it was official, I was already locked and loaded and ready to go. So it is what it is. You know, that's what we do. We 
we we we don't fold on the bright lights. We actually we love the bright lights. We love the pressure. Is there any part of you that that would get a little a little nervous for a performance like that? Not me. I don't I don't get nervous no more. That shit been out the window with me. It's me doing what I love. You know what I'm saying? How could I be nervous to do what I love doing? What have the discussions so far been about what that performance will be, what it's supposed to represent, what it's going to be like, all that? I just think it's going to be family. You got to look at who's up there. Look at everybody who's up there and, and then look at what they mean to Dr. Dre. And it's a Dr. Dre presentation. So we're basically assisting him getting his back coming through like his, you know, soldiers are supposed to. We're supposed to line up when the generals say line it up. You and Eminem had a little bit of like mild in the scheme of things, but some words back and forth earlier this year. How does that affect the fact that you're going to be sharing a stage in the, in the spring? Um, shit, we love each other. Like, if you got siblings, you know that you, you have misunderstandings and disagreements. That shit happens, you know what I'm saying? But the beauty of it all is that, you know, if I'm wrong, I know how to call Marshall and say, man, I apologize. Um, I was wrong, bro. Do you forgive me? No problem. Let's roll on. And that's that, what it that's you, what that's what it is. Is that what actually happened? That's, is, is it, did you did you apologize that? I feel like it was necessary, you know what I'm saying, for me to to not, you know, let it drag on but to put some resolution to it because I was the reason why it became what it was and I felt like I could be the reason to stop it. And wow. for the sake of the family and the sake of my love for him and Dre and, and what we built, that was the only thing to do. When did you do that? When did you call him? Probably maybe about four months ago, four or five months ago. And, um, wow. you know, he was reaching out to me and, you know, reached back and we made it happen. I mean, you got to understand, we really love each other. So we don't want the public to put a spin on something that's not even that serious where we can actually grab a hold of it and make it what it's supposed to be and probably dance around and make this shit look like something so you guys would think we really mad at each other and then we do some music together then you'd be like, fuck it, I can't believe it. But that ain't what we in it for. We really love each other so it's not a gimmick with us and we truly, you know, respect each other so we wanted to get an understanding behind closed doors and as you can see, we have full understanding. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I got it just looking at what he said, I feel like straight up, it's just like his feelings were hurt. Like, I think it was just as simple as that so it sounds like he did the right thing. We brothers, man. When When you got brothers, you know, my big brother hurt my feelings a lot of time. I wanted to join a gang, and he wouldn't let me. And that used to bother me that he would never let me join the gang until I went out there and joined the gang. I was like, I should have listened to this motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? So you you learn to to understand and to respect each other as brothers, as family members, and you respect each other's opinions and their spaces and their conversations. And long as there's no disrespect directly or, or ill will, then it can all be forgiven and it can all be moving on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. 
part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I heard that there's a new Dre album. Are you working on that? Mm. Could be, could be, maybe. But I could tell I could tell you this, there's a Snoop Dogg and Eminem song on the Mount Westmore album. What's it called? From Detroit to the LBC. And that's obviously t- for people to be clear to people, this is a, this is a separate album. That's Mount Westmore. That's uh, the first single is Big Subwoofer off of the Algorithm album. Big Subwoofer bouncing like a trampoline. Glass shake when I roll past the scene. Candy apple paint dripping classic green. Everybody eating, you can ask the team. Fast and mean. Which is setting up our album, which is coming out January. And the Eminem Snoop single is featured on there. And that motherfucker slapped. That shit is, whew. It, it was very challenging for me. Let I'll say that to say the least. Eminem really fucking shot at me. He shot his shot. <laughs> and as a rapper, that's what you want. You want when you get a feature to have to fucking work your ass off. You want somebody to come to the playing field, putting up points and never leaving practice to where you got to rethink your shit and say, well, damn, this is what he thinks of me. That's why he's going so hard, because he knows that I'm going to match him on this same level. And that's what it is when you're making records with people that you love and family. It's competitive, but it's, you know, it's competitive for the right reasons, to bring the best out of each other. So the, the Dre album, you, you try not to say anything about that. That's top secret still? <laughs> you know, Dr. Dre, I'll tell you the album coming out, and you, three years later we'll be talking about this shit, and you'll be like, is it coming out? I don't know. But I do well, know he's true. in the studio. I do know he's making great fucking music, and um, I think some of his music is connected to the GTA game that's coming out. That will be the way that his music will be released through the GTA video game. That's interesting. And, and But you are part of that. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know, but Nothing But A G Thing made the top 30 of Rolling Stone's list of the greatest songs of all time, the one we just put out. Uh, it's like number 27 or something like that. Of, the, of all t- of all the songs of all time, which is you know pretty good. So I wanted to ask you about the what you remember about the the making of that song since we've officially named it one of the greatest of all time, which it is. One, two, three, into the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope, ready to make an entrance. So back on up, cause you know we're about to rip shit up. It's crazy because there's two two versions of that. The first version was I was living on Tenth and Lime on the East Side. And we was in the studio, and Dr. Dre gave me a tape with a beat on it. And it wasn't the G-Thing beat. But I took the beat back to 10th and Lime, and I wrote all the G-Thing to this particular beat. Took it back to the studio, and he heard it, and he liked it, but he said he didn't like that beat. So he put another beat on it, which was the beat that you hear, which is, I want to do something freaky to you. Then I got a toothache. And I was on probation, joint suspension probation. And at the time, I didn't have no money to get no dentist or none of the other shit. So I asked one of my aunties to give me some pills because she was like the lady that had all the pit nails. So she gave me a pit nail to kill the pain. And I went back and got another one. And I went and took a drug test and didn't know that that pill she gave me was a prescribed drug that wasn't prescribed to me. And I got a dirty test and I had to go to the county jail for four months. So we had to push pause on that. I get out. Then when I get out, they bring us the deep cover soundtrack. I write the deep cover soundtrack to that song. Then from there, go back to G-Thing and then re-record it again. Now that my teeth is healed up and, you know, my mouth is right. So now I can say the words the appropriate way and get that shit off. And I wrote the whole song 
for Dr. Dre initially, but he was like, we should do it together. I think some people know, but maybe don't think about it is, you know, it's not a secret. You wrote his parts. Like, how, how does that work when all these years when you write stuff for him to rap? Are you thinking like, I'm Dr. Dre right now. This is how he'd do it. I'm in his flow to a certain extent. Because I, I mean, it, it, it always fascinates me how that works. Well, when I was writing his shit, I was thinking about how dope he sounded on N.W.A.'s last album. He sounded dope as fuck on there. And the D.O.C. was the secret behind the sauce. And then the D.O.C. had became my mentor and my sensei. So he was shaping and molding me on how to write for Dre and how to write for me. And I was writing in Dre's voice. So whenever I would write for him, I would write it in his voice. Like I would say it in his voice. Can you do that? Do that for us for one second since we can hear you. How, how would you do Dre's voice? Well, I'm peeping and I'm peeping and I'm peeping. But I damn near got caught because my beeper kept beeping. Now it's time for me to make my impression felt. Sit back, relax, and strap on your seatbelt. You've never been on a ride like this before. With a producer who can rap and control the maestro. At the same time with the dope rhyme that I kick. You know and I know I flow some more funky shit. <laughs> and so as you record a demo, doing that in his voice and doing your part in your voice. That kind of thing sometimes. I did the whole song, right? My parts, his parts, and then he learned his parts. And then he go in there and do it. And then on some particular songs, like after that song, it got... Like when we did Dre Day, I wrote his first verse, Mr. Buster, where the fuck you at? He didn't want me to say it. He sat next to me and had the paper in his hands, and he said, rap it. And he was reading my writing while I was rapping it to him. So it was a different wow. different style when we did that one. That was like, fuck that, say it to me right here while you're sitting next to me. Now, for nothing but a G thing, didn't you also record some vocals? Dre said that you recorded some vocals over the phone from jail, maybe for a demo. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, because I had, I had, I think I had the second verse to falling back on that ass. What a hellified gangster lean, getting funky on the mic like a whole batch of collard greens. I wrote that in in the county jail because I only had the first two parts, and I had said it for him when I was locked up. Like I got the second part, he like let me hear it, and I was just spitting the shit for him over the phone. That nigga remember that shit? <laughs> it's crazy that the deep cover happened in between, like while you were in the middle of that song, because that's a classic, huge classic in its own right. And my understanding is that one just came together in like one night, like boom, like all at once, kind of incredibly fast. Yeah, it was uh, Dick Griffey shot us that soundtrack because he was the uh, CEO of Solar Records, and I believe they had that soundtrack connected to them. So it was like nine in the morning, and Dre was about to go to the gym, and he was like, I'm going to put this beat on. We got to do this song for a soundtrack. I need it to be done when I get back. He usually work out for like two hours. I'm like, well, what, what's the movie about? What's happening? He's like, shit, I don't know. And the <laughs> nigga just left. <laughs> so he left, right? So then Suge called me like 15 minutes later. He was like, doggy dog, I'm finna call with these motherfuckers from Sony on the line. And what you're going to do is you're going to put the beat on, you're going to freestyle a little bit. And then you're going to cut it off, and you're going to say you, you the song is almost done, and we're gonna, I'm going to call you back and tell you everything. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm like, what's the, what's the movie about? He like, uh, a motherfucking undercover police officers uh, selling dope. I'm like, damn, I went to jail for selling dope to an undercover police officer. So then it all just clicked. I'm like, all right. So then before Dre left, he gave me his first lines. He said, I want my shit to start off like this. 
Tonight's the night I get in some shit. Deep cover on the incognito tip. He gave me them two lines and he left. And I handled it from there. And when he got back, I had all that shit wrote. The hook, the verses, the out. And when he got there, I said it for him first. Just my voice, his ears. Then I went in there and said it on the mic. And when we did it, that nigga didn't like it. <laughs> he didn't like it when it came out. And he still don't like it. We've only performed that song two times, ever. I guess you're probably not going to be at the Super Bowl saying 187 on an undercover cop, but that would be pretty classic. It would uh, be, right? <laughs> if a motherfucker at least get that one line in, huh? <laughs> yeah, and you don't stop. Cause it's 187 on an undercover cop. Creep with me as I crawl through the hood. Maniac, lunatic, calling Snoopy Swoy. <laughs> I wanted to jump around chronologically. People don't realize, I mean, there is a very short list of rappers who made huge hits in different, separated by decades. And that list is basically only you, maybe a couple other people, but but that's, you know, you're on that list. And I mean, Drop It Like It's Hot was years later. And it is one of the, you know, it's one of the, I also, in my opinion, one of the greatest songs of all time, period. And I, I feel like the two producers that, you've always worked with best is probably Dre and, and Pharrell, the Neptunes. I come in the studio, Pharrell got his little keyboard and his uh, little shit in front of him, how he get down. And he playing a little bit of it, but the beat ain't all the way done yet. It's just like a, a piece of it, but you can feel where it's going. And then he like, he rapping and shit. I'm a nice dude. And he already had his verse. I'm like, damn, that shit hard as a motherfucker. <laughs> I'm like, nigga, go and spit that shit. He like, you want me to rap on him? I'm like, yeah, go ahead, cuz. So he take off on the first verse. Boom. Then we get to the hook. Drop it like it's hot. He tell me to say, drop it like it's hot. And I feel in the middle parts. Drop it like it's hot. Boom. Then he get to my verse. I write my verse. Dope. He like, yeah, that shit hot. Do another verse. I do the second verse. I finish with it and I say it. <laughs> and they get the board. He like, hey, come out. When a nigga say that, that ain't good. <laughs> he like, hey, come out. I'm like, what's that in it? He like, that ain't it. I'm like, damn, that ain't it? He like, nah. So he played again. He played this whole song from his verse to my verse to the third verse. And I listened to it. I'm like, damn, that ain't it. That's weaker than the second verse. So now I got to sit in the corner and write a whole nother verse. Now I'm kind of like mad because I'm like, okay, this nigga challenging me. So now I come with the third verse and then I go back in and he like, yeah, that's it. Put that shit together. So this is what he do that throws me off. He called Dr. Dre to the studio. I don't fuck with Dr. Dre in the studio because Dr. Dre is the worst crit critic you could ever have around you. He hate everything. So when he say Dre on his way up here, I leave. <laughs> he don't even know I left. So I leave the studio. Dre and Jimmy Iovine pull up to the studio, and he played a record for him. And I'm somewhere in Hollywood, somewhere driving off somewhere, and he called me. Dr. Dre called me. I'm like, damn, he finna talk about the record. That nigga Dre was like, nigga, this is a motherfucking hit. I'm like, for real? He like, nigga, this is a motherfucking hit record, nigga. I'm like, damn. Dr. Dre said it's a hit. I know it's a hit because he don't like shit. <laughs> so that's how I knew that record was hot because Dr. Dre said it was hot. I wanted to return to the DOC for a minute because I don't know how many young people know about him, but I, I talked to him a couple years ago 
when the NWA movie came out and you know he's amazing his his own music is amazing he people don't know but he you know he had a, his voice got damaged in an accident and it's it, that's been something he's been struggling with all these years but he he continued to to do work such as working with you i mean what what did he convey to you when he when he was working with you i think it was more about him recognizing and seeing in me what i am now and seeing that he didn't have his voice anymore but I could be his voice and I could be his wisdom and his understanding, his teaching and his, you know, his student. I could be his best student. I could come all the way full circle to life and become everything that he thought I would be by him giving me that information. It's like a karate kid coming to a, a sensei and got a nice kick, a nice punch, but the sensei knows that he could become Bruce Lee. And then when he finally becomes that, you know, we all can smile. He was your Miyagi, I guess, or your yes, Yoda, or whatever, yeah. Wax on, wax off, my IP man. I wanted to ask you about something specific in it, that you do in your rhyme schemes. Uh, Gin and Juice is a great example. When you're going, I'm not going to rap, but when you say, somehow, some way, co- coming up with funky-ass shit like every single day, and then the next line begins with May, I kick, a, a kick something for the Gs, you're rhyming the, the beginnings of the lines, and that's something that you invented and that you do sometimes. Where did that come from? Nursery school. <laughs> <laughs> Elementary school, paying attention to my teachers, you know. They teach you all of this in school fundamentally, you know what I'm saying? I paid attention to the words, the, to the rhymes, to the rhythms. And then I studied a lot of the great MCs before me, and I always wanted to be either a beat behind them or a beat ahead of them as far as, like, with my cadence, with the with my flow, you know what I'm saying? So... Like, just being a student of the game, like, wanting to be great, wanting to perfect this thing called hip-hop. If I'd asked you at the time of the Chronic or, you know, or Doggy Style, who is the greatest rapper alive? Like, you know, who are you trying to live up to at that point? Slick Rick. Slick Rick or Ice Cube, one or the other. And Ice Cube yeah. on the gangster shit, Slick Rick on the lyrical content storytelling. Those two, hands down. Well, Slick Rick is the probably the greatest storyteller of hip-hop in hip-hop history. He could tell a story that make you feel like you was right there in the story with him. His voice was so sultry and so relaxing and calm. And then he got that British accent, so it sounds a little different and fly the way he's spitting his words and his verbiage. And in his cadence, he never uses a cadence that you've heard before. It's his and his only. The laid-back thing, the relaxed thing, that's part of the essence of what your inspiration was from him. I think the laid back comes from more of the the movies I watched. The Mac, Superfly. To watch a black man remain sang fra, and that's calm under pressure. To watch that was instilled in my brain as far as like if I ever get to be what they are, I'm going to be them and then some. Because my heroes would always live at the end of the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I wanted to be that hero. Speaking of living, I mean, you turned 50. Is that something, had you thought about when you were 25? Or did you think, I'm going to be 50 years old? Or were you one of those people who were like, maybe this is all going to end young for me? Like, how did, you, how did you think about it? Well, when I was 25, I lost one of my best friends. Tupac was murdered that year when, when we both was 25, so... The life expectancy wasn't, you know, half of what it is because of the times we was living in and the way that we was projecting our 
our energy out there to the world. So definitely blessed and wasn't thinking it was going to be this, but each year, each day, we get stronger, we get better, we learn how to be better people, and we learn how to live better. Yeah, I, I was specifically thinking about Tupac when you were celebrating your birthday. It's like we never, he never got to see what life would be like when you can mellow out and, and, and get into your 50s, and we never got to see what his artistry would be like in his 50s, because you know it would be very different. I don't know how much you think about that in relation to yourself. I always think about you know what music would sound like if he was still here. Because I know what his spirit is like. I'm I'm a I'm a doer. He's a talker and a doer. You get what I'm saying? So I feel like him being here would be what I'm doing, but with more conversation behind it and more standing on top of it. Because that's just the way he was, and I always been the one to stay low key in the pocket and speak when spoken to. It's interesting because for someone like Kendrick, who's younger, you know, he never got to meet Tupac. If you talk to Kendrick about Tupac, it's like, you know, it's like a, a legend, a god. It's like, a you know, not a real, you know, like you can't really picture him as a as a person standing in front of him. But, but you know, this this was your friend. This is this real guy you knew. I don't know if you, have you ever talked about him with, with Kendrick, for instance? Nah, never. Um, like a, a lot of the little homies from the West Coast never met him. And I think that... When they get a relationship with me, that's as, as, as probably as, as a blessing as they can get because they know that I had a relationship with him and I'm actually still here with them to give them some of the information that he probably would have gave them if he was here. So they look at me as a reflection of him because we were so tight and so close and we, the same thing, we was doing the same thing. So I feel like a lot of times, you know, they won't talk to me about him because they feel like when they talking to me, they talking to him. Do you feel that responsibility that you're, you're sort of carrying on for, for him and other people we've lost? Yeah, this hip-hop. You know, this is what we do. All of the fallen soldiers, it's our responsibility to carry on their legacy and do what we do. Biggie was a friend of mine, too. He was a real dear friend of mine. If you listen to his record, he said he was dreaming of Learjets, Manches, and Coops and trying to sell records like Snoop. Oops. You know what I'm saying? That's That's... That's saying that I'm riding for him and I know my team ain't with it, but if I stand up for him, maybe my team won't ride on him. And that took a lot to say that, you know what I'm saying, on his last record. Who would have thought that he would mention me on his last presentation? And he played that record for me. I heard the record before it came out. I was able to pull up on him in New York one night, and he had me come by the studio, and he was like, I want you to hear this. And he had a bunch of his homies in the studio, and he played that shit for me, and it was like, it was like the utmost respect for him to play that record for me, for him, for me to know that he thought that much of me to put that shit on his album. I think it's like one of the first songs on his album. That at was time, growth. Give me, give that was your... that was growth though. He had grown into a position of I'm at peace. I love Snoop. Snoop showed he loved me. Let me show him a little love back. I'm trying to end this shit. He knew that that was a, a olive branch. That was a part of resolution. You know, when you step forward and say, "Hey man, I love one of y'all kings over there." How y'all gonna hate me? And you, of course, had already, by the time that, that Pac passed, you had pulled back from death row. You were you were not with it. You were not kind of getting involved with, with all that back and forth by that point. You were you would you would kind of move past that. Yeah, man. I, I got a, a girlfriend. She wasn't my wife yet. I had a son and a son on the way. I think I had my newborn, little Snoop was just born. 
So I was in a different mind state. I was trying to live. You know, before I didn't care about living or dying, but at that point, I was into my wife, into my, my two boys, and I wanted to live. Now, it was uh, Chuck D pointed out that until recently, there was no such thing as a 50-year-old rapper. It was unheard of. They just didn't, the art formist knew enough that it, that it was literally impossible until a few years ago. Are you going to still be record? I think you will. I, I think you should. Can you imagine being a hip-hop artist at age 60, at age 65, at 70? You know what I mean? Do you see that, that there's any limit on it? I don't see why, because they don't limit the Rolling Stones. They don't limit exactly. those other groups that do it outside of our genre. And we should be respected to the point to where that conversation shouldn't even exist no more. It should be, you know what? You got rappers in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You ain't got no motherfucking rock and rollers in the Rap Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, so slow it down a little bit and start putting some respect on our name and give us the respect for who we are as far as don't, don't put no time limit on how old we are or what we are. Because we don't look at, at the, the rockers and say, man, he got white hair now when he used to have black hair and it's all gray now we love their music we love them we respect them we come support them we sing their music like you know diehard fans and we should get that same love in hip-hop you know what i'm saying because we created something that that's gonna last forever and it's generational it's like my music has been with grandparents and grandkids i got people that's 70 80 years old that love my music and i got kids that's seven eight years old that love my music it's hip-hop yeah, that's a point that a bunch of people made at LL Cool J that, that, you know, why, and he, you know, he started the classic rap format at Sirius. And there is this, you know, why, if classic rock gets so much respect and so much reverence, why should not classic hip hop and, and classic hip hop artists get exactly the same amount of reverence? And it's, it, there's, there's and absolutely. It, and you no know what the crazy part is? The most dominant genre of music in the world for the past 10 years has been motherfucking hip-hop. Ain't no doubt about it. Because you got all kind of artists from different genres pulling from the hip-hop tree to make their shit cool, hot, or relevant. And that's what it is. Hip-hop used to be forbidden, meaning that rockers couldn't touch it, uh, pop couldn't touch it, you know, certain R&B couldn't touch it, until you had groups like Run DMC break the wall down and show that we better together. I mean, you're a living part of this history. Doggy Style was the first rap album to debut at number one on the pop charts. I mean, like, this, you you were the person who broke that barrier. So you and, know. I, and I damn sure wasn't motherfucking pop in 1993. I was a real nigga from the east side of LBC. Didn't give a fuck about pop. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you a real story. It was time for me to do an interview with a particular magazine, right? <laughs> and Jimmy Iovine was like, hey, man, I need you to do this interview with the biggest magazine in the world. I'm like, what's the name of him? He like Rolling Stones. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about the Rolling Stones. Nigga, I don't listen to their music, nigga. He was like, nah, I'm not talking about the group. I'm talking about the magazine. I'm like, man, fuck the Rolling Stones. I want to be on the Source magazine. That's where my head was at because I had no idea of how big it was. I was just straight from the hood. The Source magazine was the pinnacle to us. Oh, you yeah, feel what I'm Bible, saying? Yeah. yeah, so this is just the, the young Snoop Dogg just giving it to you uncut. I didn't realize and didn't know what that meant to my career. But once I got on the cover and they took the picture of me and Dre and I started getting bigger money for my performances and a bigger fan base, then I understood what Rolling Stone meant. How about a Snoop Dogg biopic? I think a Snoop Dogg anthology would be, you know more clear because I like can't see 
yeah, I couldn't see my life in an hour and a half, in two hours. Like, you got to look at Snoop Dogg as, and when I say it, don't laugh. Snoop Dogg is the black Forrest Gump. Every iconic moment that ever happened in the past 30 years, he was directly in it, on it, or around it. So it's got to be something that depicts that. It can't just be a, he was on Death Row Records, yay, the movie over with. Because I was on No Limit Records. I had a life before I was a rapper. I have a mother and a father who have stories that was instilled in me, which made me who I am. You know what I'm saying? So it's like it should it should really, you know, tell the life story. You understand me? But I do feel like a biopic is necessary. But how would you tell it when I've yet yeah. to I've yet to stop? It could be a TV series. Is that I could see it on Netflix? Is that is that something that you've actively pursued, or it's just an idea in your head? It was a conversation I had uh, with Netflix once upon a time about you know doing it. You know, but I just want to see exactly how to do what I want to do because it's a certain element of it that I definitely want to tell. And I know a lot of times these networks or these companies feel like we just want to get straight to the get straight to the action when you were on death row and it was exciting and it was violence and it was nah fuck all that. I want to tell the story about my mom and daddy meeting each other, falling in love. How about that? Before it gets to me, and in that way, it's a real setup. Of when you finally see Snoop Dogg on screen, you understand his struggle, his love, his pain, and his admiration for people. You did a book, but it feels like you could also do another book, a more extensive autobiography. Is that something you're also thinking about? Yeah, that first book I did, I was young. Somebody came to me and was like, nigga, let's do a book. You know, I'm like, all right, fuck it. What you want to know? It wasn't even like, you know what I'm saying? I hadn't even went through nothing yet. Motherfuckers just happy to be with Snoop Doggy Dogg and get a book with me standing on the front looking half crazy it wasn't even a real book if you ask me so i definitely do need to do a book my cousin told me that day he said he said what he say, like uh girl you need to do a book on the successes on how you became successful homie so it's like I, it's different levels of storytelling in the book that i feel like i could really be you know beneficial to the industry and people in general with the idea that there's no retirement in sight, how, how do you see the next, like, 10 years, 15 years of your career? It's another space I got to take over. I just got to figure out what it is. Um, shout out to 50 Cent, Curtis Jackson, for taking over Stars Network and taking over that TV space on Sunday night. That's very inspiring to me, to see my brother take a network that nobody was paying attention to and make that network more relevant than HBO, Showtime, and all of them networks put together on Sunday night. So that's very inspiring to me. And um, like I say, when I'm inspired, I usually make something happen. You have all this equity in a lot of different companies. You're making bigger moves than some people might understand on that level. Uh, so how about business-wise? Like, what's the next level? Try to stay on top of everything that I'm doing, whether it's the NFT world, if it's the metaverse, if it's... Bitcoins, if it's movies, TV, alcohol, cannabis, uh, pet line, clothing store, whatever it is, you know, I'm going to perfect it. I'm going to make sure that it's right. And I'm going to make sure it's going to be here 100 years after I'm gone. It's funny when you mentioned, like you said, uh, you, you were arrested for selling to an undercover cop. I think they, they sentenced you to four years for something that's now legal. In many places in the United States, you ever think about no, that no, no. And I, just I, the, I got the insanity for, of that? I got caught for selling cocaine. That wasn't no weed. Oh shit! Okay. <laughs> it was yeah, a controlled. That was a controlled <laughs> substance. That was rock. 
That was Rockefeller, a controlled substance. You did the other thing, cocaine, heavy. My bad. I was factually incorrect on that that's one. All so good. That, that's you know. That's, that's my that's my that's my younger years. You know what I'm saying? I'm not afraid of it. I'm not ashamed of it. It made me who I am. It taught me how to hustle. That's right. Thank you, CIA. <laughs> <laughs> and be- before we go, tell me. I mean, fiftieth birthday. Tell me about what what's the biggest thing you learned as you kind of approach this age? What, what did you learn about life that you wish you could have told your younger self or that you tell younger guys now? I don't, like as far as my younger self, nah, I ain't fucking with cuz. I'm gonna leave him alone. He's straight. Nigga, you getting it in. Nigga, keep on going. You fucking it up. You gonna catch up to me one day. I'm not gonna stop none of that. I wouldn't change nothing. Everything it is, it's there for a reason. It made me who I am. You know what I'm saying? The good, the bad, and the ugly. I had to take it. You know, it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always Rolling Stones wanted to do an interview with me and people lined up. It was days where I couldn't get interviews and couldn't get shows and couldn't get certain things. So it's all about commitment and work ethic. And I had to put that back as my main focus along with my family. And that was today's episode. Thanks so much to Snoop for a really special interview. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That's truly always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.